Well, I'm very excited too, brother, and I appreciate your prayers as I have requested those the last few weeks um, in preparation for this exposition, a new journey, and this glorious gospel. And um, so we will be beginning the Gospel of John today. If you would take your copy of the scriptures and turn there with me. You might be wondering, I wonder how long we're going to be in the Gospel of John. The real answer is I don't know, Um, but uh, it's probably going to be a couple of years, most likely. Um, You know, we spent nearly three years in the book of Hebrews, and um, I think we were in the Gospel of Mark for a year and a half. It's a shorter gospel, but uh, we're just going to go at God's speed and and as, as he leads, and so... Um, I'm only going to read the first three verses today. It's going to be largely introductory, and then I'm going to exegete just the first two verses. So that's our our plan. And hopefully my cough will stay under control that just randomly decided to come back (laughs) about at the beginning of the service. So let's read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, indeed, we express our utter dependence upon you, even for the next heartbeat in our chest, the next breath that we would breathe. Lord, even to be able to give our attention into the Word of God, we pray that you would help the one proclaiming it as well as the one receiving it. Lord, may you be glorified most of all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've got the four Gospels. We might begin by asking, what does Gospel mean? Most of you know that means what? Good news, news, right? And um, a, gospel, a, a, a gospel of the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, none of these are meant to be 100% exhaustive, right? Um, so these are select, uh, the, the gospel writers take select events um, from the life of Christ and compile them in their own way. I mean, I own some biographies that are 800 pages long. So, I mean, if, if there was going to be an exhaustive biography of Christ... Uh, Well, John even says all the books of the world could not contain it, right? So, but all four gospel writers are telling the same story. They bring selective events from the life of Christ. Well, the good news, what is the good news? The good news is concerning the grace of God for ruined sinners. We were born in Adam in sin. We are sinners by practice. There's no hope of deliverance apart from Christ. And that's what the Gospels summarize. We have in the Gospel according to the grace of God, Acts 20, 24. Just to look at a couple passages here. I do not, Apostle Paul, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Also, Jesus taught in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is near, right? It 
It's also the gospel of salvation, Ephesians 1 and verse 13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him in the Holy Spirit of promise. The gospel is also the good news of peace, right? It's a peace that surpasses understanding. And even as, excuse me, Paul would quote, In Ephesians 6, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Peace from God. Peace with God. He brings all of that to us. It's the good news. It's the good news of hope as well. Colossians 1.23, if indeed you continue in faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Even in John 1.17, just let your eyes fall down a few verses. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Actually, in our scripture reading, we just read in Isaiah chapter 40 there in verse 9. Get yourself on a high mountain, O Zion, the bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, the bearer of good news. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. So we have the gospel, the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of Christ. At least eight times in the New Testament, it's it's called that. The four gospels tells, tells us of the life and the work and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that gives full expression to the very truth of God. I mentioned it earlier, but at the very last verse of this book, it says, And there were many other things that Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's a profound statement, Right? So we have to understand, John is being very selective. All the gospel writers are being very selective with what they choose to include. Gospel of John has been called God's love letter to the world. Isn't that beautiful? God's love letter to the world. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, This is the unique, tender, genuine chief gospel Should a tyrant succeed in destroying all of the Holy Scriptures except for one single copy of the Epistle to the Romans and this Gospel, then Christianity would be saved. In other words, there's enough in the Book of Romans and in um, this Gospel that we could glean to be saved. Luther loved the Gospel of John. He preached on it many years at the church in Wittenberg. Some of the best-loved verses that we all know, maybe some of the earliest memory verses that, that you memorized as a child or as a young adult, are contained in this gospel. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Or in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Or in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Or chapter 15, I am the true vine. 
Or chapter 11, I, I am the resurrection and the life. These statements of deity. Even when folks are nearing their deathbed, and I know I've been asked to read this several times in such occasions, visiting the sick and those that are nearing death, they ask for what passage to be read? John 14. And there it states, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. Those are words of comfort, especially for those that are on their deathbed who are believing in Christ. <clears throat> I said, I've also seen unbelievers, people that I've ministered to over the years in retirement home ministries that I've talked to enough to discern that they're not truly in Christ, but they have that, that childhood um, influence. They know the words of amazing grace, and, and they often want Psalm 23 to be read to them. But if you're not truly trusting in Christ, they're just mere words. Arthur Pink said this, In this book we are shown that the one, who has the one that was heralded by the angels to the Bethlehem shepherds, who walked this earth for 33 years, who was crucified at Calvary, who rose in triumph from the grave, who 40 days later departed from these scenes, is none other than the Lord of glory. The evidence for this is overwhelming. The proofs are almost without number. And the effect of contemplating them must be to bow our hearts in worship before the great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of that. I mean, this is, this is the, the Lord of glory that we're learning about in these Gospels. Well, the Gospel of John is often called the fourth Gospel. It's entered forth in our um, Holy Scriptures here. Each of these were never meant to be comprehensive, as I said. Each one explains something special about Christ. Uh, Matthew presents Jesus as king, right? Writing primarily to Jews. Mark shows him as a servant. Luke shows him as humanity. And John, of course, sets forth his glorious deity. Well, the author of this book is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, that could be 11 of the 12, right? <laughs> Not Judas. But um, we know from church history, we know that this, uh, John is the author. The author had to be a Jew and familiar with the customs, the Jewish customs, but also a very eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 114. The word became flesh and dwelt among them? No, us. And we saw his glory. The glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Chapter 35, or sorry, chapter 30, verse 35, chapter 1. And the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. John was an eyewitness. The date of this um, gospel was put into question. Some doubted that, it was the gospel, that John was the author. 
thinking that it was written in the second century because the earliest manuscripts we had dated around 325, around the council at Nicaea. But then in the last 100 years, maybe 150 years ago, as many manuscripts were being uh, discovered, there was one discovered in Egypt, part of a, a wrapping of a mummy that was dated to the year 125 A.D., and why is that important? Well, it shows that John definitely demands a very early date, so much of an early date that the, that the, the gospel could be reproduced and then even go to other countries. Now, John is very unique uh, when he compiled, you know, when you compare it to the synoptics, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are commonly called the synoptics. There's a lot of parallelism, a lot of re- repetition. John was not a historian. John actually omits key parts of the life of Christ. It's actually pretty remarkable when you think about it. There's no account of Jesus' birth. There's, there's no account of the temptation or the transfiguration or even the baptism uh, that, of Jesus, even though it's certainly implied in, in, even in chapter 1 here. There's no institution of the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of John. So it's almost as though, and most agree, John was the, 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 the last one to write his gospel. And having collected and read and, and looked at the others, he wanted to come in from a different angle and to bring in uh, other key elements. <clears throat> most distinct is the fact that it lacks many of the parables of the other gospels, which are those instructive, pithy sayings that, that sort of just... Uh, hook you, right, with a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, and, and, and they communicate so much. In fact, Matthew records 16 parables. There's five in Mark, there's 20 in Luke, and there's one, you could probably point to one, some of the commentators say none, but turn to chapter 10 with me. <clears throat> Reading the first six verses for us. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know him. His voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, this, notice, figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were that he had been saying. So, the same thing with the other Gospels where the disciples aren't really understanding, like even the parable of the sower, which is the first one told. And Matthew and Mark is, is, is the key to really understanding all of the parables. Matthew records 20 miracles, Mark 18, Luke 20, and John, there's only eight. Now, on the other hand, John includes many key passages that are, you cannot find in the other three Gospels. In fact, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> Matthew 4, looking at verse 11 and 12. Now, you have the temptation of Christ. 
between, and from verses 1 to 11, the angels came to minister to him in chapter, or in chapter, <laughs> verse 11. And then in verse 12, now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. There is a gap of several months in the life of Christ between those two verses. And the other Gospels do not capture it either. And what John includes is, is really the early ministry of Jesus in Judea. Probably four to six months of ministry. He alone writes of the, the water being turned to wine in John 2. Of Nicodemus, the religious leader, coming by night. The in- encounter with the Samaritan woman. The encounter with the Pharisees in 5. So really, from John chapter 1 and verse 19 through chapter 5, is tucked in between Matthew 4, 11, and 12. And that's just a neat puzzle to understand there. Perhaps most precious is the Upper Room Discourse, chapter 13 to 17 of John, that beautiful, intimate scene with the disciples that communicates so much truth. So the Gospel of John, on the one hand, is, is very basic, and easy to understand that even our children can capture a lot of what's there. But it's also very deep and profound. In fact, Richard Phillips says this, John, the Gospel of John, is a pool safe enough for a little child to wade into, but deep enough to drown an elephant. So there's deep theological truths that are here. John combats the heresies that were arising in his day, writing probably in the latter part of the first century, It's meant to be evangelistic. John realized that he had a mixed audience, and so that was his purpose. Um, In fact, it says in chapter 20 and verse 30, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. But these have been written so that, here's the purpose, why they've been written. Here it is, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's his purpose, right? That you might believe. So if there's anyone here that is not yet a Christian, you young people, that have not yet made a profession of faith in Christ, listen to this. Let John's purpose take root in your heart and draw you to himself. When I preach, I have the same purpose, that you would believe and the Christ, when any of us preach from this pulpit, that's the goal, that if anybody be outside of Christ, that they would come to Christ. John goes back to the very, very early days, to the very beginning as he, as he explains his gospel. What does John have to do with this, this spiritual gospel? Well, when he wrote, writes his first letter, we heard it read, These things which were from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, which we've touched with our hands, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, John says that he is writing to them about a person, a person whom he has seen, who he's heard, who he's touched, that could be verified with a historic investigation. What about you, my friend? 
Do you know this Jesus? I don't mean, do you know about him? Yeah, he was like 2,000 years ago. He was like born in Bethlehem, right? There's some shepherd. I don't mean like, do you, can, you, can you repeat the Christmas story? But do you truly know Christ? Do you have that assurance that he's died for your sins? Is he actually just a man or is he the God-man to you? Well, the basic structure, and this is a very simple structure. I mean, uh, the book's been outlined probably three long pages with breaking it all down, but just four uh, simple sections here. You have the prologue, which is verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1. That's kind of the introduction. It's the prologue, right? Verse 19, you get into the testimony of John and, and the telling of that. So the prologue's very important. We'll spend a few weeks, probably several weeks in that. And then from 119 to 1250, you have Jesus' public ministry. It's clearly revealed. Then uh, chapters 13 to 17 is his private ministry to his disciples, right? The upper room discourses and his high priestly prayer. And then you have Messiah's work completed with the crucifixion and resurrection. That's chapters 18 to 21. But it should be noted that John didn't just willy-nilly sit down and just start writing, you know, various things. The prologue is really, really important. He introduces things in the first 18 verses and brings them up later and redevelops them and tells them in a different way. I mean, just think of it, the pre-existence of the Son of God. We see that in our text today, verses 1 and 2. But also that comes back in his high priestly prayer in 17.5. The fact that in him was life, you see that in chapter 5, that he is the light. In chapter 8, he is the light of the world. That light rejects the darkness, chapter 3 and verse 19. Um, Christ, not received by his own, that's developed in chapter 4, and so, and so on and so on. There's so many different things that we'll see as we kind of go through these first 18 verses that we're going to see those further developed, if that makes sense. As we Now, let's go ahead and seek to expound these first two verses just the first two verses under three simple points, the eternity of Jesus, the personality of Jesus, and the deity of Jesus. Three super simple points. First of all, the eternity of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. He uses this imperfect tense of the Greek, eimi, which is translated was. It's an imperfect tense which, which communicates the idea of a continuing, timeless existence. He deliberately uses this language at the beginning of his gospel to throw the, 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 the Christian mind or the Jewish mind back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So it's, it's intentional. Other Gospels start at the human origin of Jesus, at genealogy and birth. John's emphasis is the divine nature of the uncreated Christ. So with no genealogy, just the starting point is eternity past. At the very, very beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word, the Logos, uh, to Greek philosophers, the Logos was impersonal and abstract of reason uh, or order of the universe. 
logos. Who is that? It's, of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes that clear in uh, verse 14. The Word became flesh, right? That's, that's the Lord Jesus Christ taking on humanity. So he was already with God when creation even began. Leon Morris says, The Word existed before creation, which made it clear that the Word was not created. The Word is not to be included in and among the created things. Implication, if the Word already was in the beginning, then either He must have been with God, or He must be God, and John teaches both. He was with God, and He is God, right? That's really what he is saying here. And there's a mystery of the Trinity. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But John is giving his eyewitness account throughout this um, letter. So, Jesus took on real flesh, real blood. He was not a ghost. And even in this opening verse, he's telling us something of the awesome things about the Lord Jesus Christ. His eternity, these attributes, his majesty, his deity, even the fact that he, as sense, is the creator, right? All things came into being through him, right? And so it's an amazing thing. It's a reminder that even in the, the, uh, in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this word always existed as the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity. Psalm 102, which is quoted in Hebrews 1, says, O Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Next, the personality of Jesus. We see that in 1b and verse 2. And the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. Well, eight times in the creation account in Genesis 1, it says, God said... It was by God's word that he brought creation into being. Jesus is a distinct person. And and, and why do I call this the personality of Jesus? Look at verse 2. And he was in the beginning with God. That's telling us something about the Son, something about the Father. It's telling us something very beautiful when it says, um, and, and, and he was in the beginning with God, it's pros, it's towards God. It's a picture of face-to-face fellowship. It's a picture like two lovers looking into each other's eyes. Utter purity and holiness. They're facing each other. Jesus also would say, every day I was with you and Mark so again, it's like two, run, two lovers running towards each other, gazing into each other's faces. It's, it's a picture of deep, intimate fellowship, something that we as fallen humans will never experience in this life. We can experience to some level, but not with this, untainted from sin, absolutely pure. The verse 2 underscores the importance of verse 1. By restating these profound truths, his pre-existence as the word in the beginning, the fellowship that he had. Of course, the doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, even at the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, 
The Father speaks, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. There's a beautiful picture there of the Trinity. Even back in Genesis 1, let us make God in our image, Elohim, which is by by nature a plural uh, reference to God. The Trinity is eternal and immutable and cannot change. That means it's not as though when Jesus came on the scene, one God just popped into three persons, right? And, you know, oh, now we've got, you know, it's not that. God is altogether immutable. Our London Baptist Confession of Faith says the Lord our God is is but one only living and true God. And yet we know God exists in three persons, right? Three distinct persons, each having the whole divine essence, and yet the essence is undivided. I know these are deep things. Three, these three persons are interpersonal and have relationship and fellowship, one with the other. Now, don't think of God as um, three, like think of water with three modes, right? Steam, um, running water and frozen water. Don't think of it like that. Or, or even that, oh, God, it's three roles. It's okay because, I mean, I'm a husband to my beautiful Jennifer who's homesick. I'm also a father to many children. And I'm also an elder in a church. So I have three roles, right? But, but, but don't, you can't think of God that way because each has a peculiar role. It would be, it's blasphemous to say the father died on the cross. And sometimes when we ask men to pray for the Lord's element, rarely, uh, as we're about to have the Lord's Supper, um, a young man that maybe is new will let that slip. Thank you, Father, for dying on the cross. It's actually heretical. If you've heard that here, we're sorry. (laughs) But but, So in other words, you can't refer to it like that. They have distinct particular roles. And it's a beautiful picture of this eternal fellowship, this complete contentment. And even in, in, in... First John, you know, that his purpose in writing, oh, he says there at the end of verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. We must understand that God does not need us, and yet the triune God in eternity past forms a covenant, a covenant of redemption amongst the three persons of the Holy Trinity, that he would create a world, that he would create mankind. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture, this Trinitarian covenant, so much mystery. So that's the personality of Jesus. Now the deity of Jesus is obvious. The word was God. (laughs) The clearest, most direct statement in all of Scripture that Jesus Christ is a word. You go, well, how how do you know the word means Christ? Well, in chapter 4, I don't know why I keep saying chapter, verse 14, the word became flesh, right, and dwelt among us, speaking of his incarnation. There's no definite article there. It's not the word was the God. The word was God. It's plain. It's simple. It's direct. Not just divine, but deity. The same essence of the Father. Turn to chapter 20. This time I mean chapter, not verse. Uh, Chapter 20 and verse 28. You know that scene in the upper um, room there where Jesus appears after his resurrection and Thomas is not there. Thomas says, I will not believe unless I can see him and put my finger in the imprint at his side 
And then look in verse, well, verse 27, actually. And he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. You remember earlier, uh, he was saying, I will not believe unless I can do these things. Jesus gives these commands, they're, imper- they're imperatives in the Greek, uh, to do this, do that, do that. And what does he say? Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, if Jesus was not God, he, you know, there's no account of him saying, oh, no, 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 Thomas, I'm just a son of God. I'm just, I'm, I'm under God. Don't, don't call me God. No, he accepts worship as God. Very beautiful. So simply stated, Jesus' deity is an essential part of the Christian faith. You can't be a Christian if you deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those people that... Hi, I'm with the Watchtower Society. Those people that come to your door, they deny the deity of Jesus. It's, it's very sad. Uh, I, I, I t- usually take opportunity to engage them because they're on their way to hell. They're just deceived. The, the Mormons that say that God used to be a man, all of this kind of stuff, they come to your door knocking. They deny the deity of Christ. You can't be, you're not going to heaven if you deny that Jesus is God. Revelation 1.8 I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The scriptural evidence for the deity of Christ is overwhelming. Seven times in the Gospel of John, the I am statements, right? Evoke what? That scene in Exodus 3 when God met with Moses. I am who I am. Moses says, who should I say? Uh, is sending me. I am who I am. And Jesus comes along and says, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. That's meant to evoke deity. (laughs) Jesus and the Father have many of the same titles, right? I mean, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, right? reference to the father but yet jesus is called shepherd as well the holy one right you hear the demons in mark chapter one after they're before he casts them out what do we have to do with you holy one of god the demons say that to jesus right all throughout the old testament especially the book of isaiah god's referred to as a holy one the judge the mighty god the list goes on Jesus possesses the same incommunicable attributes that the Father possesses. He's eternal. He's the eternality. He's omnipresent. You have that at the the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. I am with you always, right? He's omniscient. He knows all things. In Matthew 11 and verse 27, it says, All things have been handed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. But also, He's immutable. Remember, we just finished Hebrews 13. 
He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can be trusted. He's a tender shepherd. He's a shepherd like no other human shepherd. He's he's our great high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, that can relate to us in our, our disappointments and the trials and the burdensome things of this life, the health trials that come. He sympathizes with us. And he's eternal. He's immutable. He does not change. He doesn't treat us one day this way and the next day that way. He's immutable. He cannot change. He's the creator who spoke everything into existence. He also receives prayer. Thinking about his deity in uh, John 14 and verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The cults distort the meaning of this verse. The word was God. By adding the word was a God, as though there's many gods. The Jehovah's Witnesses claim that, that Jesus is a mighty, great teacher, but that he was created, therefore he's under God. The Mormons, that God used to be a man. The Aryan concept of Christ is that the Son of God did not always exist, but he was created at some point. And with this one sentence, the very first sentence of the gospel, wipes all of that heresy away. Wiped away. He abolishes and sweeps away the heresy and by, that Satan has sought to harass the church of God from the beginning with these lies and deceptions. Arianism, he's inferior to God. Sabellianism, which denies the distinction of the very various persons of the Trinity and says that God sometimes manifests himself as Father, sometimes as the Son, and sometimes as the Spirit. So Sinaiticism, which declares that Jesus Christ was not God at all, but a mere man. So these first two verses of the book, you've got a decision to make. Is this really, is this Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he really the Son of God that demands our worship? Well, conclude with a couple points here. Um, our response should be one of worship, brethren. It should be one of worship. Bruce Milne has written, We are called to worship God without ceasing, to obey without hesitation, to love without reservation, to serve without inter- interruption. He's worthy of our service. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our worship. To anyone here that's outside of Christ, we're, we're learning about the first, we will be learning about the first coming of Jesus, the account, right, and his first advent, but th- he's coming again. There's a second advent when he will come again to judge the world and he will be a judge of all men. You should be alarmed if you know that God is not your friend. If you know that you're running in rebellion, today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your heart. Today, the door of opportunity stands wide open if you would but repent and run to Christ by faith and embrace Him by faith. Believing that he, as he died for sinners on the cross, that, that perhaps he's died for your sins and you can be saved and set free. But you have to come confessing, coming clean, repenting of all of your sins. Jesus saves. In fact, Messiah means Savior, right? Christ means Messiah or Savior. He is the divine word that came to save sinners. That was his mission. He came to save sinners. He came to answer life's greatest problems, the reality of death. We all want to live, but 100% of us will die, will face death, some very painful death, some a very sickly death that includes pain, some sudden death, some accident that's not even, you wouldn't imagine would ever happen to you. He comes to give eternal life to those who believe He's the one that said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you, do you believe this? He asked Martha. Our biggest problem is that we're naturally alienated from God by our depravity and by our sin. Our guilt testifies that we are under the wrath of God. You know that voice in your head? And I'm not saying when Satan comes to accuse you, you should be able to recognize that. But our conscience that he's given us, that when we do a certain thing, we know that it's wrong and conscience convicts us. Henry Ford, on the assembly line, a hundred years ago, um, his assembly line broke down. He was desperate. He called in several repairmen to fix it. He's realizing he's losing money. He finally called Mr. Steinmetz, a mechanical genius who built Ford's plants. And he came and he tinkered for a few minutes and fixed it and sent him a bill of $10,000. That's 100 years ago. What would that be? Uh, $300,000 maybe today? Something like that? Well, Ford complains. <laughs> and and do, you, do you think it's too little or too, too high for a little bit of tinkering? So Steinmetz revised the bill and put $10 for tinkering, $9,990 for knowing where to tinker. Well, Jesus knew how to fix this broken world. He came, this world shedding his own blood. The awesome thing is he, he does not present us with a bill, but he offers us the free gift of salvation if we would become to him to enjoy eternal life. I'll end with reading these verses that should be very familiar. Chapter 3, verse 16. I know verse 16, probably all of us know it by heart, but I want to read through verse 19 so you can capture its context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him is judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. 
Our Father, we do pray that you would be pleased to warm our hearts with these truths that we've been discussing even this very day. Lord, we pray especially for any who, um, whose eyes have not been opened, Lord, and we know that you're sovereign, and that's, that's a work that you have to do. And so we pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on any here, especially our young people, especially with the baptism coming up in just a couple of weeks. We hope and trust, and Lord, that you would stir amongst our young people. Lord, I pray that for those of us that have been in Christ for a year or even 30 years, um, Lord, that we would grow in our worship and adoration of the triune God, that we would grow in our appreciation for all that the Lord Jesus Christ has said, all that he has done in his works, and all of who he is in his person. Lord, we are so finite. We are so limited. We long to grow. Enable that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.